Well, uh, good morning. It's good to be with you. We're going to dismiss our children for uh, uh, Children's Church right now. Uh, I am, my name is Matt. I'm a pastor at our church. I'm returning from a vacation, and we've been uh, landed in the middle of a lot going on, as you can imagine. We had a wonderful, uh, wonderful vacation. Uh, we drove west with our family. We went to uh, Yellowstone. We went to the Grand Canyon. We went to all kinds of parks in Utah. And uh, we drove a lot. So uh, our car held up. Our, our family did not kill each other in the midst of any of the long car rides. And we got lots of great photos. So we were so thankful for that. And uh, also uh, happy to be back with you in the midst of a lot that God's doing, a lot that's happening. Um, we are picking up today in the sermon series we're doing through the, the book of Acts. Um, and uh, we've had a little bit of a break. In my absence, some people have been preaching, going different directions with a number of things, but we're resuming this sermon series. It's a, uh, a look in the book of Acts. It's been spread into three parts over a bunch of years. But here in this final section, the final eight ch- uh, chapters of the book of Acts, uh, we're looking at Paul's witness for Jesus in the midst of his imprisonment. In some ways, the whole book uh, of Acts is about the apostles giving witness to Jesus. They encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and they were speaking and living and testifying to the resurrected Lord everywhere that they went. The church was growing and expanding, but it happened in different ways at different times. Uh, We follow the book of Acts to the early expansion of the church through Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria, and as it begins, the message begins to cross out of a Jewish group into the, uh, the Gentiles as well. And then we follow the second stage of the book of Acts where the Apostle Paul in particular takes the lead on missionary journeys. He travels throughout the known world using all of the benefits of the, the Pax Romana, Romana or the, uh, uh, the peace of the Roman Empire to travel and uh, to speak in the cities of the time about the risen Lord Jesus. And the church begins to grow, not just in Jewish sections, but in non-Jewish or Gentile sections as well. But in this final section, the witness to the Lord Jesus is very different. It occurs in the midst of imprisonment. The Apostle Paul returns to Jerusalem. His his goal is to to really establish this Jewish and Gentile nature of the church together and to, to honor the church that he came from. But there he ran into serious opposition, Uh, he was imprisoned, and he will spend the rest of the book, this entire section, in prison, in chains, so to speak. And yet, his mission is not diminished. The Apostle Paul continues to do what he was doing, but in a very different setting. And so as we look at this passage today, we see one of the, the many times in this part of the book where the Apostle Paul is sort of on trial. He's, he's not technically a trial here, um, but he is testifying about his faith in Jesus and about the beginnings of this new church. He's still doing what he's called to do, even in terrible circumstances. So we pick up with the story here in Acts chapter 25. We will uh, read, and, and the first two paragraphs will sort of serve as a summary of what's been happening. So if you forget, or if you haven't been here for a while, or you've never been here before, these two, two paragraphs kind of summarize what's been happening as one Roman leader tells another about how they got to this point. And then their, their solution is to say, well, let's hear from Paul again. So they bring Paul forward, and he begins his testimony, one that he'll continue next week. So I'll read the passage, and then together we'll affirm uh, that this is God's word for us, a good and gracious gift. Acts chapter 25, uh, verses uh, 13 through chapter 26, verse 8. 
Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and uh, Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. That was the former governor. Uh, uh, Festus has just taken over. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case as such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus, who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day and for this hope i'm accused by the jews O king why is it thought incredible by any of you that god raises the dead this is the word of the lord well after returning uh, from vacation one of the things i needed to do was catch up on various work projects i was heading to lowe's yesterday to get something to fix an appliance, and flipping through the radio, I started to listen to a program on NPR. I was so captivated that I I not only stayed tuned, but when I pulled into the parking lot, I kept listening. Have you had those moments before? You're you're so gripped by a story that you don't even get out of the car. You sit there, and it it was hot. It was a hot day. My air conditioning was struggling. I was sweating in the car, so gripped by a story. 
The, the reason I was so interested is the story was about a church planter. That's not something you expect to hear on the radio. In fact, it was about a church planting movement. Again, not something you typically hear on the radio. Uh, and it was a, a story sort of similar to one I experienced uh, working with a church plant in Boston and then also here. City Reform was a church plant 14 years ago. And uh, many of the things they were talking about were familiar. In fact, they did a, an interview. They had an interview with a pastor, some of you know, named Tim Keller. He's written books that we read. And a couple of characters in the story were people I've met before. So I have my mind, my, my, I wrote texted Chrissy, mind period blown period, right? I think that's how you, you communicate something's going on. It, one of the things that was most memorable for me, though, and, and something I remember hearing, is they, they were talking about how church planning sometimes talks in terms of business strategy. This can be good or bad. And there's an emphasis placed on communicating the message of your church very clearly, and so they will say things like, you know, write your mission statement or, or emphasize in your core values what you, what's really important to you. Someone might say, if you were in an elevator with someone and they ask you, well, what's your church about or what, what's Christianity about? Could you tell them in just a few brief points what was really important to you? Oops, sorry. Well, that, it's a good exercise, isn't it, to think through. If I was going to say what's most important, if I had just maybe a short moment to say what's most important, what would I say? Well, Paul maybe practiced that way. Maybe. Maybe it was just part of the business. He had been for so long traveling and, and speaking in different settings to different groups of people, and they would turn to him and say, okay, Paul, you're new in town. We've heard you talking in the synagogue or talking with the philosophers about your Christian faith. What's this all about? What would he say? What would you say if you were in Paul's position? You were on trial and, the, and, and, the, and you're brought into the royal court with all the pomp and the ceremony and the dignitaries and, and all of the glitter and the glamour of the court and you're brought in and they say, okay, tell us what it's all about. What is the Christian faith all about? How would you describe that if someone put you in that situation? And maybe you're here today and you're just exploring Christianity and it's kind of new to you. That's probably the right question to be asking, isn't it? What's this all about? What is this thing all about that I'm uh, exploring and listening to and investigating with a friend or a colleague? Well, Paul, in his, in his, uh, in his defense here, begins with one of the points of entry that he considers to be most important it may be a bit of a surprise for us. Let's just briefly review how we get to this place of Paul giving his defense, and then we'll see what he says. Uh, Paul, again, was a prisoner because of his conflict with the Jewish authorities. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who disagreed on a lot, were able to agree that they didn't like Paul. There, in fact, when Paul went to the temple, a riot broke out, not once but twice, and he was actually dependent on the, the, the police, so to speak, the Roman guards coming and putting him under arrest because it saved him from, uh, from a mob action against him. Uh, the reason that people were so angry is that, Je is that Paul was proclaiming that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You may remember we saw that here just in our reading today when, uh, when uh, Festus was reviewing what happened. He said, they're arguing about these sort of points of religious doctrine. And then he, he summarized one thing. This, this person, Jesus, who was dead, Paul says he's alive. That's what they are arguing about. 
there were tremendous implications of Jesus being raised. And one of them for Paul is that the ministry, the promise of God was going out not just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles as well. This person, a certain Jesus who was dead, Paul asserted to be alive. Well, Paul was saved by the skin of his teeth. He was brought out of Jerusalem to the Roman capital. When Caesarea was a port city to the north and on the coast. And for a while, he was kept there by the governor, Felix. At times, Felix liked to listen to him. He saw no guilt in Paul. But he, wanted, he, didn't, want to, he didn't want to cause problems with the local religious people of the realm that he was overseeing. And he was also, Luke tell, told us, hoping for a bribe. So Paul stays in prison for two years. He stays in prison, and then a new governor comes. A new governor is Festus. And Festus, in a sense, is going through the books, and he's saying, all right, uh, what's the leftover business from my predecessor? And he's sort of making his way through the, the court cases and the outstanding trials, and he's probably thinking, why did you leave this for me? Why didn't you just take care of this before you were gone? He's, he's left a thorny issue. When Festus goes to the, the, the center of the region in Jerusalem, it immediately comes to the surface. These religious leaders come out to him and they want Paul back. They want a trial, not in Caesarea, but in Jerusalem. And they've made a plan to ambush him on the way. Paul knows it's a potential trap and at the very least it's not where he wants to go. So he appeals to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he can say, you have me in your custody. I want to be bumped up. I want to stand trial in Rome. And so he's there waiting. It'll be a while before he can be sent with a proper escort to go. And so as he waits, Festus is still scratching his head and he's thinking, I don't really understand this matter. In fact, I'm, going, I'm in an uncomfortable position of, of sending Paul to Rome. I'm going to have to write a letter to introduce him to say why he's appealing his case and what the case is, and I don't even know what to write. So he gets a visit from Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Agrippa was uh, more connected with the Jewish people. His father had been somewhat nominally Jewish, and in a sense he's, he, he's more of an insider, but he's still Roman. And so as they meet, and, and uh, the new governor's meeting with one of the kings of a nearby region, sort of a, uh, a meeting of the heads of state, they're probably talking about all sorts of things, and then uh, the conversation turns to business. And Paul says, hey, you know, I've got this problem, and maybe you can help me with it. I don't know what to do. He's probably new to the region, and, and many of the local disputes were really above his head. And so Agrippa is intrigued, and he says, well, let me listen to him. You can imagine maybe two plumbers getting together at a, at a picnic with their families, and they're you know, talking about the kids, and then one of them says, oh, by the way, I saw this drain the other day. It was the strangest thing. I don't know what they were doing. And the other guy says, well, intriguing. Let me, let me see. I'll go with you and look at it. It's, at least that's what I imagine plumbers do with their picnics. If you're a plumber, you might uh, correct me on that later. I mean, it's the last thing you want to talk about at a picnic. Pastors do that. Right? You're sitting around with other pastors, and you say, boy, you wouldn't believe this thing going on. What do you, tell me what you would do. Well, that's sort of the scenario here. And so Paul's brought out the next day. It's not really a trial, but, but Agrippa's going to enter in. He's going to give him another chance to proclaim uh, what it is that he believes. And Paul then stands before him and they say, Paul, tell us what it's all about. And Paul says, we've been waiting for a hope. My people have been waiting on a hope, for this hope for many years. And God had promised that he would bring a, a, a savior to our people. 
And he promised that one day the dead would be raised and all things would be made new. And we believe that hope has been fulfilled, at least in the first part, in Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I'm paraphrasing what Paul actually said here. But you can see that's, that's what's going on. He says, we have, I'm on trial, Paul says in verse 6, because of my hope and the promise made by God. Now, this is, just want to pause here for a second, and, and, and I, I want to focus on this today. Paul will do other things in his testimony. He'll talk about his own life and, and about how, how Jesus came and changed everything. In fact, he'll even make an appeal to Agrippa, that, that Agrippa should bow his knee before the Lord Jesus. It's a pretty, pretty brazen thing to do. It's a, more next week. You, can, you want to come back and listen to that. It's exciting stuff. But, but here, I just want to pause for a moment because we have an insight into something going on in the book of Acts that's really worth thinking carefully about. When Paul is given the opportunity to say, this is what it's all about, he focuses in the very beginning on the resurrection of the dead, in particular on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I think that's worth considering because, again, we may be in the situation of being asked, what's Christianity all about? Someone were to say to you, what's the gospel all about? Or what is this Christian faith all about? You could give many answers. You might say something like, well, uh, Christianity means you should be a better person. Or it means you should go to church or believe in God or read the Bible or say prayers. But you probably would think, you know, this word good news, gospel, is really not so much about me. It's first of all about God. It's about who God is and something he's done. And so we might shift our explanation to say, well, you know, at its heart, Christianity is about God loving people. It's certainly not a bad answer. Or we might be more specific and say it's about God making himself known through Jesus. Or Jesus doing something for us, living the life we should have lived and, and giving himself in our place that we could be forgiven. And we've already heard that once in our, uh, in our worship service today as we moved through this call to repentance and renewal. The problem is sometimes our presentations of the gospel stop there. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Would you follow him? Not only does Paul not stop there, he doesn't even start there. For Paul, the entry point is this. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, that is not separate or distinct from everything I just said. The Jesus who was raised is the Jesus who came to reveal God, who lived the perfect life, and who died for us. In fact, it would make no sense for Jesus to be raised if he hadn't already died. All of that's together. Theologians sometimes say they're just two sides of the same coin. But it is intriguing to me that Paul's entry point, his starting point, is to talk about the resurrection. The reason I'm choosing to sort of land on this and focus on that today is that it's not just here, but throughout the book of Acts that Paul does this. And every time you go to a different chapter or a different section, you can only emphasize so many different things. But if you were to trace a line through all of the times in the book of Acts where one of the apostles gives a speech, where they, they preach a sermon about what Christianity is all about, it would invariably center on the resurrection. In fact, in many places, that's the starting point. It's the focal point. Jesus was dead, now he's alive. What does that mean? That's sort of how they approach the matter. And I'm not suggesting that, that we, you know, revamp everything we've ever done with explaining the gospel, 
But I think noticing that and recognizing that can highlight the fact that for many Christians today, or even for people exploring Christian faith, the resurrection not only fades into the background, it sometimes serves as an appendix on our faith. But for Paul here, and as you look through these letters as he writes in the New Testament and the things that he argues, for Peter in his, in his speeches and his sermons and acts, as well as our call to worship today, this is really from one of Peter's letters to the churches, in those places, the starting point is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what I'd like to do today in our remaining time is just ask why that is. As we, as we follow that thread throughout the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, why is it that the resurrection receives such emphasis? Why is it so important? Now, one of the ways we could answer that is by thinking experientially. One of the reasons the resurrection was so important for Paul and for the other apostles is that when they met the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changed. It was at that moment that they came to understand and think differently about all that had been happening. They had been following Jesus. They didn't quite understand what was going on. They didn't expect him to die. They probably thought he was going to be an earthly king to help kick out the Romans. We're not sure all that they thought. But when he died, they were devastated. Peter denied Jesus when he was uh, uh, taken into prison and the All of the apostles except one fled and ran away from him. And yet on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to the apostles and these followers who had been cowering and hiding and fearful and running away were soon after empowered with such great boldness that they shook their earth with the proclamation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. A Korean scholar named Siyun Kim writes that for Paul in particular, his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road was the thing that changed his life and would shape all of his theology afterwards. When we see Paul tell his testimony next week, we'll see the central place that his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus had. And so one answer to this question, why did they talk so much about the resurrection, is that experientially it changed everything. But I think we can answer it differently as well and maybe more beneficially for us, the reason that they focused so much on the resurrection is they knew that the resurrection of Jesus explained everything else in Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus explained and showed us what was meant by the death of Jesus, and it pointed forward to all that they expected to happen in the future. As such, it changed their day-to-day moment entirely. Let me just look at those three things quickly as, as we, you know, in our remaining time. It changed the way they thought about the death. It changed the way they thought about future. And it changed how they lived in the moment. So we'll look at Paul's words in some other places for a clue to what he was thinking. In the beginning of his letters uh, to the Romans, Paul tells us that the resurrection of Jesus said something definitive about who Jesus was, who he is, what he did. If you look with me in your additional scriptures, you'll see a reference to Romans chapter 1. Paul writes this at the beginning of that letter, Jesus Christ our Lord was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul says this, the resurrection of Jesus tells us clearly what God thought of him. He is the Son of God. If you were exploring Christian faith and asking questions about it, you 
would inevitably have this question. You would say, how do I know that Jesus is the Son of God? The apostles would have been so ready for that question. In fact, that, if you ask that question, they would say, I'm just waiting for you to ask that question. That's what I most want to talk about. Because he was raised from the dead. We saw him. The resurrection of Jesus is God's statement of, of authentication that everything Jesus said and did, his self-giving sacrifice on the cross, all of that is received, approved, and accepted. In that moment when, when the apostles saw Jesus raised from the dead, they could know for sure that what Jesus said was true. You may be asking a varied question. You might say, how can I know that the death of Jesus really satisfies my guilt? How can I know that that God really accepts him in my place? The answer again is the resurrection. That's how we know. It's God's statement about Jesus. The resurrection means that everything Jesus did really worked. It's it's the, the evidence that God received and accepted it. I mentioned before I've been doing appliance restoration and uh, you know when, when I work on an appliance I watch a lot of videos and I get help and uh, I'm, I'm a bit over my head. Usually at the end of it there's about a 50-50 chance that it's going to work. So you, you take the machine apart, you put something new in and then there's that, that moment of truth. I was fixing the washing machine this past week. That moment of truth where you plug it in, you turn on the water and you, you push the button. Oh, it was a glorious sound when the water <laughs> flowed into the dishwasher and I knew it worked, right? The miracles of YouTube, they can teach you how to do anything. In that sense, when the, when the power came on and the lights came up and the water flowed in, you knew it worked. It was the, it was the evidence that all of the machinations and all of the work and all of the replacements had actually accomplished their goal. And it, yeah, boy, maybe that's a stretch. <laughs> maybe it's a stretch. But can you, you picture in the same way Paul's saying, when we saw Jesus, we know, we knew for sure, everything worked. Everything that he said, everything that he did, it was accepted. His life was given for us. And he was proclaimed to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. But not only does the resurrection look backwards, the resurrection looked forward. Now, at this point, we have to pause and think about what a first, traditional first, pers- first century Jewish person would be thinking about the world and about history and about where everything was going. Now, there were a group of Jewish leaders, the, Sa- the Sadducees, who rejected a lot of what we would call the Old Testament, a lot of the Hebrew scriptures. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in a lot of the prophets. But the majority of Jewish people, certainly the traditional Jewish belief, would have affirmed, listening to the prophets of the Old Testament, that at the end of time, God would bring an end to human history, the dead would be raised up, and the world would be made new. The first promises of this were given by the prophet Isaiah. The same promises are carried over into the Christian faith and elaborated more in books like the Revelation, the final book of the Bible. And we see a picture in which God will bring the resurrection of the dead, a final judgment, and all things will be made new. If you were to ask a first century Jew what they thought about the term resurrection, that's what they would think about. At the end of history, God will raise the dead, everything will be made new, and he's going to fix it. 
In fact, when Jesus was on his way to the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus had a sister named Martha. She meets with Jesus and she proclaims this thing. You may remember the story. Jesus says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise up Lazarus. And she said, yes, I know. I believe in the last day all the dead will be raised. She said, what do you, I'm, I'm a traditional Jewish person with historic beliefs about the resurrection and the end of time. But Jesus said something different. He said, no, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. When the apostles saw Jesus raised from the dead, not just resuscitated, modern science can bring someone back, but they're back. And Jesus, in de- demonstrations and foreshadows of his own resurrection, brought people back, but they were back and they died again. What Jesus did in his resurrection is he went forward. This is the universal testimony of the New Testament. The resurrection of Jesus was different than anything that had happened before. It was the end time, end of the world resurrection breaking in now. And that's why the, the New Testament would speak of Jesus as being a first fruit. He was a foretaste of what will happen. This end of time power where God changes everything and he makes it right and he restores the world and he sets things as they should be. Jesus has entered into that now and so when we see Jesus we see a promise of what will happen we see the foretaste the first fruit the expectation of a radical victory that we too will share Romans chapter 8 verse 11 Paul says this if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you He will also give life to your body. You too, he says, will share in the resurrection. In his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, Paul makes a similar argument. He says, you too will be raised. He says something definitive about your future and about our future. So the reason the resurrection was so important is it tells us something certain about where the world is going. It tells us something about the story that we're living in. The ending of the story has so much to do with how we understand it, doesn't it? We're driving home from our vacation listening to a story, uh, a dark, hard story about World War II, which you can imagine is dark and hard. And there were parts of it that were beautiful and exciting. And as the story went forward, I found myself thinking, what kind of a story is this? Is it a story that moves to redemption and restoration? Or is it a story that moves to bleakness? And as you go throughout, 90% of the way, you can't tell. And yet, as the end unfolds and the characters move forward, either into redemption and restoration or into darkness and despair, the whole story changes, doesn't it? Do you ever find yourself doing that in a gripping book? You think, how's it going to end? Is this a movie where the the characters I've grown to know and love, they're going to survive, or is everyone going to die? Is this a typical Hollywood blockbuster, or is it like an indie film where everyone's going to die and it's going to be dark? What story are you living in? Where's your story going? Boy, your suffering and your difficulty and your trials look a lot different if the ending is full of restoration and redemption, right? Are these road bumps on the way to glory, the difficulties and the challenges you face now, 
were they a foretaste of despair and destruction? When the apostles saw the resurrection of Jesus, they said, this is the first fruits of things that will come. And this is our assurance that he who gave life to the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, dead in the grave, he too will restore our bodies. Those two things, what Jesus did and what God will do in the end, form the poles of the Christian life. It's the same spirit, Paul says in Romans 8, that dwells in you. And so the reason, the final reason, the resurrection was so important is that by faith we're connected to Jesus. His death is our death. And his resurrection begins to work new power in our lives now. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that's at work in the lives of people who are following him, his disciples. The spirit that gave life to his body will also give life to our mortal bodies, and that is the spirit that dwells in us now. And that is why Paul thought the resurrection was so important. It was the linchpin. It was the thing that held it together. The testimony that God had indeed worked in the world and that he was bringing redemption. That's good news for us, isn't it? Good news for you. As you come here today, how are you finding the brokenness and the darkness of the world impinging on your life? Do you sit here today with an awareness of your own brokenness, your failure, even in biblical languages, your sin? your guilt, where you have, through your own actions, deeply hurt others and fallen short of God's glory. Friends, there is good news in the resurrection. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, a perfect sacrifice for sin that takes away our guilt. Through faith in Him, we can be renewed, restored, and that Spirit dwelling in us can give power to live differently. There's hope. Do you find, as you consider your life, that often the darkness is seen, seen most clearly as you read the news headlines and recognize the challenges and brokenness of the world around us? Injustice breaks in. Headline after headline reminds us that we have really no control over events that bring deep darkness and suffering to our city and to our world. The resurrection of Jesus is a promise that God will make all things new. That God is now working in the world, that all authority has been given to the risen Lord Jesus, and that we, where we are helpless, He is present, working to establish His kingdom in the hope that one day his kingdom will completely come and that all things will be restored. The promise of that great hope gives us encouragement in the midst of dark times and dark situations. Finally, do you find the very reality of bodily decay and death to be a shadow over you? Some of you are are on the upward curve of body development and growth. Every year you get a little bigger, a little taller, a little stronger. And some of us are going in the opposite direction, on the, the downward curve. In some cases, the realities of brokenness and bodily decay can be very evident and very painful. 
The Bible doesn't mask this. Instead, it promises a hope of restoration that's greater than anything we see now. The Spirit who gave life to Jesus will one day give life to your mortal body. The cold shadow of death that has so strongly brought pain into your lives is not the final word. The breakdown of your own body, the anticipation of death breaking into your families, to your own life, to people you care about, it's not the final word. Jesus was raised from the dead. Paul's psalm, Peter's psalm, over 500 people saw him, they encountered him, they touched him, they talked to him, and the end time victory of God is broken in with a sure promise that we who are united to Jesus by faith will also share in that resurrection. This is Paul's hope. This is why Paul could stand before all the powers and the authorities of the Roman world and proclaim his hope. It's why he could endure abuse and suffering and difficulty because he knew this hope. Friends, would you join me in prayer that this hope would resonate in our lives as we look to the risen Lord Jesus. Let's pray.